All right, welcome back, everybody, to Story, Symbol, Spirit, a podcast on how to make sense of Scripture. My name is John McCambridge, and I am joined, as always... Jackie Mitchell. Jackie Mitchell. Jackie, beautiful weather outside, sunny in the probably 70s, you think? Yeah. You wouldn't wouldn't get that from being in here, though. You're wearing a winter coat. What is happening? It's so cold in here. This is the worst part about summer. There's I love summer and there's not a lot of parts that are bad. I will say the one thing that's bad is like you dress for summer and yeah. say you have to go to the grocery store. You're in like shorts and a t-shirt at the grocery store and it's so cold at like the produce section. You like almost can't buy like produce. Like yeah. I hate like going inside a building. You have to have a you have to have a sweatshirt. You have to you have like a whole yeah, you have to have like a whole like backup little like yeah, like a jacket or something. It's like ridiculous. So every, I'm every cold time. in the building, but it, I just sat outside at lunch and it's so hot. I'm like sunburnt. <laughs> so I don't. You shouldn't really. You really shouldn't be getting sunburned in April. That's a problem. Yeah. Well, it was like 15 minutes, and I'm pretty pale. So. <laughs> That's not a good start. For <laughs> so you. pale. Not a good start for you. All right. Well, uh, this week we are going to get into Genesis chapter six, which is mm-hmm. an exciting chapter. Yeah. It's a little bit. I mean, we kind of thought last week Genesis five was controversial because we're talking about how old people are. We're kind of giving yeah. multiple theories. But Genesis 6 is very controversial, which which we'll get into here in a second. Um, as just kind of like a, a non sequitur, like a like an aside. Okay. Um, someone asked me a question in my small group last night that I thought was interesting. And I remember hearing almost exactly the same thing that someone sent me on a TikTok video. Mm. And in the TikTok video, it was it was a girl... And I don't have TikTok. And I don't even really understand it or know what it is. But someone sent me the clip. So that I can watch. The way you talk about TikTok indicates that you don't. You're like, the TikTok video. I think it's just called a TikTok. <laughs> oh, really? That's what it is. Yeah. It's just a t- But it, the app is a TikTok. No, TikTok. Wow, that was... <laughs> the app is the TikTok. Are you on the TikTok right now? <laughs> Are you on the TikTok? On the, on the interwebs? Yeah, that's... But go ahead. Yeah. All right. Can I just, like... I'm not Gen Z like you, so. Um, and on, on the video, the girl was saying, you know, she was basically like, so you expect me to believe that 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, there's people walking around with the names Matthew, Mark, Luke, <laughs> and John, which is like kind of a funny, it's like kind of a funny premise. But then uh, I think she was sort of like taking a shot, you yeah. know, which that makes me want to make fun of her. But then last night in my small group, someone asked almost the exact same question, but like very earnestly. So I feel like it it, it maybe is interesting for people if we just kind of talk about that. Well, we talked about that last week when we got through all those names and, you know, Methuselah. And, yeah, right. You right. know, and then the one was Jared. And we were like, yeah. oh, Jared. We know that guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> so some of them, some of them translate to like our English, you know, and yeah. we just pronounce them like they are. But, but, you know, the, the question, like, were people, was someone walking around being called Matthew? Like, the answer to that question is no. Right. Because in, you know, if, if they're calling him by his Hebrew name, it's Matiahu. Right. And if they're calling him by his Greek name, it's Matatias. Yeah. So we, you know, transliterate that into our tongue to some degree. Right. To right? make it a little bit easier to pronounce with the syllables we use. Right. So, so, yeah. that's, so that's Matthew, you know, Mark is somewhat similar like Marcus Marcos. Yeah, that which you, you yeah. hear that name. But you know there Very was Greek. there was a second century stoic philosopher who's pretty famous named Marcus Aurelius. And yes, so, yeah. So Mark 
you know, Matthew, Mark, Marcus, Marcus is is, yeah. is a name that was around. Luke is probably like Lucas, yeah, or um, Lucanos, and so Luke is what you know the way that we say that, mm-hmm. but in Greek or whatever, you know. Um, and then John, in Hebrew, is either Jonah or or Yonah. That's how you pronounce it. In okay. Hebrew. Or Yohanan. Okay. Which is actually different than Jonathan, which is Yohanatan. And they mean different things. You're just a John, I'm right? Just John. You're not so Jonathan. I'm, so I'm either Jonah or, or or I didn't know it had ties to the word to the name Jonah. Yeah, yeah. So, so when it says uh um when Jesus tells Peter, Blessed are you, Peter, son of John. Yeah. It's it's Peter, son of Jonah. Hmm. Which obviously was a was a prophet, which is who he was mm-hmm. named after, but it means dove in Hebrew. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that word is either, you know, or in Greek, I think it's Johannes. Okay. So nobody was like walking around saying, hey, what's up, John? Yeah. They were they were saying one of these forms of right. the name, either right. like the Aramaic dialect or or, or in Greek. Yeah. And then even Jesus is, right. like we don't name people Jesus, but Jesus comes from the Hebrew name Yehoshua, mm-hmm. which is Joshua. And then the shortened form is, is Yeshua. Mm-hmm. And then the Greek would be Jesus mm. or Yesu. And so um, I, I guess it's kind of an interesting question. It's just the way that languages work, right? So right. if I, my brother uh, did a, a, a long-term mission down in Mexico for three years, and he knew people named Juan, mm-hmm. right, which is John. Yeah. In, in in the Spanish tongue. And so that question that's being asked would kind of be like, so do you ex- do you expect me to believe that there's someone walking around in Mexico being just people are just calling him John? Right. And it's like, well, no, they're calling him Juan because that's the way that they that's say it. that's their right? language, yeah. So they're not calling anybody Matthew in real time in, in the New Testament. Right. They're, they're saying either Matiahu or Matatias or some kind of nickname for for Matthew, and that, and that goes for like kind of all the names that that you see. Um, some of the names do translate, like you like you said, like Jared, yeah, which is the Hebrew word. They think it comes from the Hebrew word Yerad, yeah, which means to go down or to descend. Uh, kind of a dark name, actually. If you think about it, <laughs> but I, I told Jared that it he wasn't kinda. particularly excited. <laughs> um, but and then there's a word like like Nathaniel, yeah, which is Natan. L, right, which means gift of God. Hmm. So Natan means to give, and L is God. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So 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 Nathaniel okay. kind of translates, and so so you see that in in some ways. Your your name is is it's a yeah. So it's Jacqueline, but that's like a, a female version of the name Jacob, mm-hmm. which means the deceiver, which is not really like. Yeah. Super cool for my name meaning. It's not why my parents picked <laughs> I the think name. It fits the Deceiver. Personally. It is kind of like a cool like if you were like a pro wrestler. That's like a pretty cool name. <laughs> <The> deceiver <laughs> or a witch. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like you can see the the way yeah. that names form. Like um, Yaakov is the 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 male version mm-hmm. in Hebrew, and then at some point you get you get nicknames and you get you nicknames. Get... Actually, the name James. Yeah. Is the same name as Jacob, which is kind of weird. It's like a lot of names revert back to like, uh, like you can trace. It's almost like a family tree of names right. down to like one root right. name. A lot of times, if you go like deep diving for what your name means, yeah, because you've got a different spelling, you've got a different pronunciation, but the root word of the root word is usually 
like a name that's been around for mm-hmm. generations and generations. Yeah, so I think that so I think yours is like it comes from Jacques, yeah, which is Jacob in French, yeah, right? and it's like the feminized version yeah. of Jacques, yeah. And so, yeah. Anyways, I don't know. I mean, this is very much not about what we're talking about today, but I, but no, I think it's interesting. What we talked about last week, for sure. Because as we go through this, we're going to be saying lots of names, and mm-hmm. some of them are strange, and some of them are recognizable, and you kind of wonder how that how that works, and how they're yeah. being transliterated into our tongue and our translations in the right. Bible and stuff. You know, and, like you know, some of the names we've picked up and we've continued using. No one's really using Methuselah anymore, right? right. So no one translated it to English to be used as a, you know, a, a child's name, really. Yeah. So there was no need to maybe like, continue. we don't recognize it because it's not a name in our right. our language. So Right, yeah. yeah. And there's some interesting things, like almost no other language besides English and maybe, I mean, not even German has like a hard J like we do. Yeah, that's true. So like Most Jackie, other places, John, uh, the, the J the, is uh, kind of like a yeah sound yeah. most other places I go. Yeah, so so you know that's that's just part of working cross languages, yeah. and you know that that that's how it goes. But th- that, again, I mean, one of my points is like, you know, whatever that whatever that TikTok was, I uh, you don't have to be freaked out by those questions. Absolutely, that's what we're here to talk you about know? too. Like, so. I'm, and I'm not trying to be disparaging to to any individuals, but <laughs> if like a TikToker could like debunk something like that in the Bible. Yeah. And like a 15 second video, like the church probably wouldn't have lasted yeah. 2,000 yeah, years. Yeah, for sure. So you just like, uh, even if you don't know the answer to, to questions like that off the top of your head, you have to understand that like we come from the richest intellectual tradition yeah. in the history of the world, which is Christianity. And so all those questions have been asked. Almost all of those kinds of questions were asked right away. Right. By the, by the church fathers. And so some of the stuff we're going to get into here with the giants, the Nephilim, and the sons of God coming into the to the daughters of men and creating a giant race like yeah. that that was that was stuff that the the first and second century church fathers were talking about yeah and trying to figure out and asking questions about and so we have lots of stuff to 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 fall back on in terms of understanding you know any question that you might have and so mm-hmm. all of that to say that we're getting into some more controversy with Genesis chapter 6 because we get into the flood story. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of questions about the flood. Absolutely. This is a very big like moral debate for people. The yeah. flood, I would say. So it's like a historical debate. Yeah. It's a scientific debate. And it's a moral debate. Yeah. So did the flood happen? Could a flood happen? Right. And is it right for God to have wiped out yeah. all life on earth? And so we we need to kind of talk about all of those things. And all of that is before you even start to ask the questions about the Nephilim. Right. We've got an <laughs> opening that yeah. begs some questions as well. Yeah. Right, right. So we're going to have to talk about all of that. So so the way that I want to do this is I want to stay true to... <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> Coffee. Coffee yeah. got in there. Yeah. Um, I want to stay true to the way that we've been doing these episodes. And I want this first episode on Genesis 6 to be you know, us going through the chapter and giving some commentary on it. Mm-hmm. And then we'll come back for an episode next week where we talk specifically about the giants. And the reason that I want to talk about the giants even more than I want to talk about the historicity of the flood is because the giants play a role throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. A big role. Yeah. And so when we ignore the passage about the Nephilim, we ignore a lot more than that. We yeah. ignore lots of things like um, if you've ever read Joshua... 
they're supposed to, or maybe this is at the end of, uh, maybe this is at the end of the Torah, but they send spies into the land, right? And the spies come back and they're like, there's giants in there. Right. And so then those giants are the ones that the Israelites then wage war against to take the promised land. And that is absolutely connected to the Nephilim that we're going to talk about here. Yeah. And so that's a little bit of a teaser. We will touch on it this episode, but the next episode we'll do a little bit of a deep dive into what Mm -hmm. we, maybe some theories as to what's going on with this and what this means and how this connects throughout the rest of of the Bible. And then, and then I think maybe after that, we'll, we'll maybe do an episode, like maybe then we'll go through the whole flood story till it subsides. Mm-hmm. And then we'll do an episode on like historicity theories, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Maybe. I actually think that's the least important question. I know people will, that's their first question. I just, I think it's the least important question. So maybe, maybe we will talk about sure. it. But, but yeah. I don't think that's really the, the thing that we have to to really be thinking about, to understand what's going on in this story. So where do we leave off last time? Yeah, so we wrapped up Genesis 5, and yep. really we've just read two whole chapters of tragedy, right? But at least Genesis 5, we feel like, ended on a little bit of a hopeful note, mm-hmm. right? And so at some point, um, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Right. So we're left with, you know, basically generations of sin after sin and becoming more, you know, prideful of their sin in those generations. Mm -hmm. And then to Adam and Eve is born another son. And from his, you know, line comes someone who calls on the name of the Lord, some people. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Adam and Eve's first sons, perhaps twins, Cain and Abel, does not go well. Yeah. So it was probably as bad as it could. <laughs> yeah, it's called fratricide when, yeah. you, when you kill your brother. And so he kills his brother and then builds a city that is built upon iniquity and, and mm-hmm. it leads to eventually an evil man named Lamech who's practicing polygamy and bragging about how violent he is and how he takes the retribution that is God's and does it even better than God does it. And you kind of have this vainglorious, you know, uh, uh, braggadocious song mm-hmm. that he sings about how violent he is. And so that line will appear throughout the rest of the Bible, but but the section makes it very clear that then Adam and Eve had another son, Seth, yeah. and through Seth um, is, is where the story of redemption is going to come from. Mm-hmm. And we went through all of the genealogy of Seth and all those names and all those ages, and we talked about that last last episode. Uh, and it, And that genealogy ended with saying that, and then there was Noah, mm-hmm. and then Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Yeah. And so then we pick up in Genesis 6. Yeah. So why don't we, why don't we do uh, one through two? One through two. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Okay. So here we go. Right. <laughs> Uh, so most of the time in the Old Testament, uh, including in the Psalms, uh, not always, but a lot of times when we see the translation angels, it is the literal Hebrew is sons of God. Yeah. So there are multiple interpretations of this. Um, there are some people as far back as the church fathers who say that the sons of God was was the line of Seth. Hmm. And then the daughters of, of men were. was the other line. 
Okay. Right, the other people. And so you kind of see this intermixing of the holy line of of Seth mm-hmm. that calls upon the name of the God. And you'll see that kind of thing throughout the Torah where mm-hmm. they're they're told not to intermarry. Right. With the Canaanites, not because they're racist. Right. But because they because God says you'll worship their gods. Right. And so don't do that. And then they do that, and then they do worship their gods, right? Right. And so this kind of mixing of lines like that is is perhaps a a plausible interpretation of this. I've seen this from people that I that I respect. Uh, one of the the guys that that has really helped me with the whole symbolic aspect of the Bible, James B. Jordan. He mm. he actually thinks of it like this. Okay. Um, but the way that I think the the most evidence that's been presented to me, especially when you start to piece it together through the rest of the Bible, is that this is indeed talking about spiritual beings. Hmm. The sons of God are the sons of God that get talked about in the rest of the Bible, hmm. which are the the angelic spiritual beings that, that God creates. And so we talked about this back in Genesis 1, but there's a realm that's different than our earthly realm. Yeah, we talked about the divine council. Yeah, where God has created certain beings and they're 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 disembodied in a way that's very different than us. And this is where the divine council comes from. And so if you haven't listened to that episode, I would go back and listen to that. And that's a very important of the the spirit aspect of our hermeneutic. Yes. Because it means that it's not just organic life mm-hmm. in God's creation. There's another realm that interacts with us. There's yeah. angels, there's demons, there's um, uh, gods, you know, with a small g. Yeah. That other when other nations are actually worshiping mm-hmm. other beings, yeah. you know, that, that God created, but nonetheless are very different than we are. And so I think that this is what is being referred to here as sons of God. Um, and so we talked a little bit, you know, about the Trinity and that, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit is perfectly whole, perfectly complete in and of himself. He doesn't need to create, but he wants to. And it's the love that moves him to create other beings to share this love with, and that's us, and that's beings in the divine realm. And so there's sons of God in the spiritual realm. And these beings are lovingly created by God and asked yeah. to participate in his, in his world. Yeah, and they've been given a task as well, just like us. But their task is different than ours. Right, right. And we talked about that in episode seven, I think. Yes. And so you see in Genesis 3 that these beings fall as well. Right. They're given, I mean, this this implies that they're given that that choice, that ability to choose, mm-hmm. and they choose to fall. Some of them do. Right. Um, th- this isn't a perfect way to say this, but in a, in a relationship that's founded on love— there is a certain aspect of freedom yeah. that's necessary for it to be love. Right. So if, if you were just programmed to love God, that would be different mm. than what you and I would consider loving him. There's mm-hmm. a freedom in that that's missing, right? Mm-hmm. And so whenever you introduce that freedom, you introduce the possibility of that going awry. Mm. Mm-hmm. And you certainly see it with the humans, and we focus a lot on that as, as the church, right? Sin turning away from God, but you also see it with the spiritual beings. And so the the serpent that is cast into the dust, you know, used to be a son of God in the heavenly realms. Mm-hmm. We talked about the seraphim and, and, you know, the guardians of the throne room. And so, you know, that serpent tempts Adam and Eve, uh, seemingly out of jealousy is what the church will go on to say. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and so he's cast all the way down into the realm of dust and ashes 
and nothingness, and there's some kind of rebellion in the heavenly realms mm-hmm. that has led to this. Um, here, uh, I believe that we're seeing another divine fall, a fall of that realm. Um, and here's the way that I kind of want to frame this conversation. One of the most important things in the creation story when the world is described as it should be is that there's an order to it. There's like an organization to it. There's a way that things are supposed to be. And those, you know, that order is not supposed to be transgressed. Mm-hmm. It's not supposed to be crossed. And so, um, you know, we'll talk about this more next episode, but, you know, by a son of God taking a human woman there's a line that has been transgressed. Yeah. There's a line that's been crossed. And just like every other time that, that this order of creation is transgressed, the, the results are bad and the results mm-hmm. are tragic. Um, and so we'll, we'll, they're not done talking about this, so, so we'll talk about this, this here momentarily as well. But uh, let's, let's go on to Genesis 6-3. Yeah, there's a line in the middle here that seems to point towards something a little bit different. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever. For they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Yeah, so what's the first thing that you notice about that sentence that's kind of interesting? For me, it's that my spirit will not contend. Yeah, Con- like contention. Yeah. There's like a, some kind of opposition of will happening. Right. Right? And so God sees this transgression happening between, you know, the sons of God and taking the the human women. And he says that his spirit will not contend or strive with humans forever. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's important for us to understand that, that, you know, biblically speaking, sin puts us in opposition to God. Yeah, we call it a turning away. Yeah. Yeah. And an active antagonism towards him. Yeah, that's true. It's not just, like, ignoring. It's also, right. like, actively decreating the world that he's asked us to to, you know, participate in creation with. Right, right. And you see that. Like, you know, there's lots of people who love God. There's lots of people who seem to be somewhat indifferent about God. And then there are people that you see that are very antagonistic towards the idea of a God. Sure, yeah. People, so I think Ravi Zacharias used to say, there's a lot of atheists who really hate the God they don't believe in. Yeah. Right. And so there is this kind of antagonism here. C.S. Lewis always talks about sin as rebellion, and he says that fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Love that quote. And so we we sometimes think about sin like we've just like accidentally missed a rule or a command of God, and so then the consequences of sin seem to be a bit much for us. Yeah, and that's part of our our nature to shift blame. And so if we can say... Well, I was just accidentally doing it. Yeah. It's like kind of like, why would you punish me? I didn't even, and it's not even a punishment. It's the consequence of our own actions. But we fail to realize, like we've said before, the the seriousness of sin. Yeah. Yeah, my mom tells stories about when I was a kid and when I would do something bad, I would say it was an accident no matter what. Right. So it would just be like a very, like I'd like punch my brother. <laughs> On accident. It's like it was an accident. She's like, <laughs> you don't seem to understand what that word means. <laughs> Um, and so hopefully Genesis 3 and 4 made clear that, that that's not the case, you know, that, that there is an active opposition to God, and in that turning away from him and in that opposition to him, there's, there's tragic results. And so in this verse, 
you can see this, that the sinful humans and the spiritual beings that are transgressing this boundary that God has created, they're contending with him. Mm-hmm. They're striving against him. And he lovingly created them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this is this is the, the reality of the situation, right? I mean, it's not to the level of seriousness, but do you ever see a, uh, like, a parent of a toddler in a grocery store? Yeah. And the toddler is not just, like, not happy to be there. They're, like, actively making it harder for the parent <laughs> to, like, get their tasks done. Food for right? them, yeah. I mean, they're, like, screaming and, like, yeah. throwing a tantrum. I mean, this seems like we're, what we're doing. We're actively, like, doing the opposite right. of what, what God's asked us to do. Yeah, I always say it's funny because babies seem to not want to do the very things that keep them alive. Right. It's like everything yeah. that is necessary for them, that's what they like fight against you for. Go to bed, eat, Food. learn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no. Uh, and so, yeah, you, you kind of see that kind of thing yeah. here. And and so God says he's not going to contend or strive with them. Uh, and their days will be 120 years. Hmm. And so there's a couple theories here that have been thrown out throughout history, church history. And, uh, you know, um, the first theory kind of takes this literally, and and it's kind of talking about the lifespan of humans. Mm -hmm. Because we just talked about how long the Bible was saying the humans before were living. Yeah. And so it would make sense that, you know, one of the theories we threw out was it was useful Mm -hmm. because there was work to do. And so, you know, living 900 years, you can get a lot more done than than living 120 years. Certainly. Um, But if they're doing evil, then that would be bad. Right, they've got nine hundred years to create. Yeah, exactly. So, so one of the theories is that 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 here, um, God has has limited their lifespan to limit human evil to one hundred and twenty years. Now, the only thing that that you know, I think that's that's possible, but uh, the two things that I I don't quite jive with on that theory is number one, most of humanity is about to be wiped out. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So most of the evil is about yeah. to, about to be gone by the flood. And then secondly, like Abraham lives to be 175 hmm. at way after this. So in this, in this sure. theory, would that that be a, a an instance of like Abraham being righteous? And so God like extends his yeah, maybe. life? Maybe. Yeah, it okay. could be. Interesting. It could be something like that. Um, but I think probably what's more likely is that this is prophecy. Hmm. That God's saying there's 120 years left before the flood. Yeah, that's interesting. So I'll contend with you for 120 years. Yeah. Uh, now, there's two things that we have to see about this. The the first thing, and, and the reason that people who start to like count the numbers here will will kind of go against this theory is because um, at the end of the genealogy, it said Noah was 500, and then when the flood comes, it's going to say he's 600. Hmm. So that's not 120 years; that's 100 years. But the only thing with that is like. It doesn't necessarily say when God made this. Yeah, his is just given a genealogy. Right, that right. doesn't mean the genealogy was made when Noah was, you know, 500 years old yeah, or so whatever. Yeah. God could that have said sense. this prior to him having sure. his sons or, or whatever. I don't know. Um, but I think that, you know, what he's, what he's probably saying is that, you know, there's 120 years left because yeah. of the evil that's being done before I do something different. Mm. Right, which is a long time to continue to contend up with us, right? That's why I think even something like this, like we tend, you, you talked about the moral questions. Yeah, this seems pretty gracious to be given a hundred and twenty years <laughs> to try and change your ways. Yeah, yeah. I think so. One hundred and twenty years ago today in America was nineteen hundred, right? Totally different. 
No World War One, no yeah. World War Two, no Vietnam, no sexual revolution mm-hmm. before the Cultural Revolution of the '60s. Like none, almost nothing about today is is, is the, the same way it was. It, I mean, it's a long time, and yeah, a, a lot, lot can, can happen. change, and a Absolutely. lot can happen. Um, and so, you know, I, th- I think that there's time for humans to change and repent. Mm-hmm. And so, I think that that this is another aspect of God being gracious and long-suffering in the midst of some pretty significant sin. That uh, we've talked about before, like, the the in terms of, like, the righteous, like, judgment of God, the true, like, judgment for us rightfully is death still. Right. And so we're still being upheld by grace. Absolutely. And our sin is affecting the world. Yeah, it's not just affecting right. ourselves. Right. So if you kind of have a modern evolutionary theory of humans are just animals like everybody else, then it's going to be hard to see this because we're just carbon-based life form that comes and then goes and whatever, you know, whatever mm-hmm. happens, happens. But the image of God stuff that we've gone through so far calls us priests. Yeah. And so we stand in the in-between and we are God's delegated authorities. And so creation thrives or suffers based on us. Right. So if we are sinning, and if these boundaries are being transgressed the way that that it's it's talking about here, then creation is not going to make it. Right. Right? I mean, think about if an intruder came into your house, started, you know, breaking all your stuff, how yeah. long you'd let them stay. <laughs> yeah, it's a good You answer. know? Yeah, exactly. Or maybe because of like uh like maybe in that analogy it's like you invite someone in. Or your yeah, home, it's like your friend too. Yeah. But then they just start breaking yeah, everything. Exactly. You're gonna be like, get uh, you have to leave. Yeah, you're not gonna I wouldn't watch them for <laughs> hundred and twenty years do that, right? But don't give your small group any ideas. <laughs> small group if you're listening, please. <laughs> no. Um, okay, so then let's because now we kind of go back to this sons of God and women thing. And so let's let's read Genesis six four. Yeah. We'll talk about this for a second. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Yeah. Interesting, right? It's so interesting that, you know, verses 1 and 2 talk about that, and verses 4 talk about that, but in between, we had that, like, break, and now we're back to talking about what I had all those questions about, which was... Right. The sons of God. What's up with that? Right, right. So this is kind of like a, an expounding on what is happening with this transgression that we talked about before, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so we're going to get into this next episode, like I keep saying. But basically, you know, it, we have to figure out what it means for the sons of God or the angels to go into the daughters of men and produce children. Mm-hmm. And so what the Bible says is that the, the Nephilim are, are produced, and so Nephilim means giant. Hmm. And so there's there's alternative theories, which we'll talk about next time, where they try to say that the Nephilim comes from the Hebrew word nephal, which means like fallen ones. Hmm. But there's a grammatical issue because it would actually mean like the ones fallen upon. Oh, gotcha. In the, in the way that it is yeah. in, in, in the text. Uh, but but I think that that the the most reasonable thing is that there's a there's an Aramaic word. Uh, I think it's like Nepalim. Hmm. That means giant. And so the Septuagint, the the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is actually older than any copy of the Hebrew 
translation that we have. Yeah. Uh, because of where we recovered stuff. Uh, it, it says gigantes here. That's basically giants. giants. Yeah. So, so at least the Hebrew tradition has always understood this to mean giants. Yes. Yeah. And so it kind of seems like you're trying to do some like semantic interpretive cartwheels right. to try to get around the fact that the Bible's saying that there were giants that were produced from the sons of God and, yeah. and the women, which I understand the the instinct to do that. Yeah, I understand. Strange, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think it's pretty clear that it does mean giant and that somehow these giants were what's called the mighty men of renown. And so mm. we'll, we'll dive into this next week. I think it's important. Um, but the, the rebellion of humanity and the, the rebellion of the angelic realm, mm. all the gods that, or all the beings that God has graciously given life to, it seems to have reached a fever pitch with this, with what's happening right here. Yeah. Right? And, and you can see it getting worse and worse in humanity. You have Cain and Abel, you have Lamech, you have the violence, the spilling of blood, the chaos, the disorder, the transgression of grasping for what belongs to God, Mm -hmm. which is what it was when they ate the fruit. Something that I think we talked about, God was going to give them. So what was the problem? Well, they grabbed it for themselves. Yeah. And here you kind of see, you know, a a similar thing, right? The fruit looked good to Adam and Eve, and so they ate it. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, the human women look beautiful, it said in the first two verses. Mm-hmm. That word that we translate as beautiful is the Hebrew word tov, which is the same word as good. Hmm. So Eve sees the fruit, it looks good to her, and she takes it. Yeah, she's made her own judgment on whether that's supposed to be for her at that time or not. And so we're seeing them do the same thing, you're saying? The sons of God see the women, they look good to them, so they take them. Yeah. Uh, we will get to this in a few years, <laughs> but when David yeah. sees Bathsheba, yeah, he sees her bathing on the roof, and she looks beautiful. Same word, tov. Mm. And so, what's he do? He sends for her. He takes he her. Takes her. And so that is fall language yeah. that becomes patterned in the Bible. You see something; it looks good to you. It doesn't belong to you, but you take but you it. Take it. Mm. And so this is what's happening with with the the sons of God. You know, they're grasping for what is not theirs. And so they take the women and they have them. And, um, you know, this is an important part of the spirit aspect of of our interpretive method because we believe that there is a realm like this. And so we believe that something like this is possible. And and I will talk about a theory that I think uh, uh, fits. And it's not that I'm trying to massage this, but I do think that it will fit better than the idea of a non-corporeal spiritual being having sexual relations with a yeah. embodied woman. Mm-hmm. There, there's other stuff going on here ritualistically that, that I think we'll talk about next week. But first of all, the most important thing to understand is that, that we, we talked about this idea of order. Mm-hmm. God created the world to be something, and we humans are supposed to be his images, and so we're supposed to participate in the world the way that it's supposed to be. And when we aren't that way, when we sin or when we chata, when we miss the mark, we miss the mark of being human. And, and instead of order, there's disorder. And instead of an integration of the goodness, there's a disintegration into, into darkness. And in John chapter 1, John, in his prologue, he calls Jesus the Lagos. Yeah. The word, the Lagos. And that is where the word logic comes from. Mm-hmm. And so logic has deep connections to order 
right? The way that things are supposed to be. If you challenge someone's logic, it's because they're thinking in a way that's not the way they're supposed to be thinking, Yeah. right? They've like stepped outside of the boundaries of what we call logical decision-making or or conclusions. And in John, it says that that logos created the world. Mm -hmm. So the world is created with logic. Yes. There's a grain that, that the world has. And so when we go with that grain in the name of God, we can take the world from glory to further glory. Yeah. But when we transgress that logic and go outside of the created boundaries and, and you know, take the fruit, do the things that we're not set up to do, uh, then, then we, we actually miss the mark of being his images and we take the world into chaos mm. and darkness. And so while we're, we won't get into the details of this, this episode, the, the sons of God reproducing with humans, whatever that means... It's a pretty obvious example of a severe violation of the order of things. Yeah. That's not supposed to happen. Right. Right. There, there's two realms, mm-hmm. and there's things that are supposed to happen in those realms, and there's things that aren't. That is not supposed to happen. And so um, we, we, one of the reasons I want to keep this in mind, this whole order of things, is because we're going to get into the Torah, and we're going to get into the instructions that God gives his people yes. how to worship him. Right. And a big part of that's going to have to do with purity, mm-hmm. clean and unclean, holy and profane, the mixing of spaces, the mixing of materials, the mixing of foods. You know, there's a very strange verse where, you know, you're not supposed to cook a baby lamb in its mother's milk. Yes. And yeah. it's like, well, what, what does that mean? And you're not supposed to mix different kinds of fabric, right? Right. So when people challenge uh, Old Testament ethics, they'll, they'll bring that up. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, first of all, it doesn't say that mixing fabrics is a sin. It says it's unclean, mm-hmm. and it makes you unclean. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is because of this. Hmm. If they're going to be God's light to the world, they have to live in a way that shows these demarcations of the created order. Yeah. So they're so one of the reasons they're not supposed to eat predators like birds of prey is because there's something about that death and hunting and and preying upon things that is indicative of the fall. Mm. So you don't mix that with yourself, right? Mm -hmm. The reason that you have to clean yourself before you walk into the temple is because that's holy space. Yeah. That's God's space. So don't walk in there just willy-nilly. You need to go through the rituals. And so all of that has to do kind of with what we're seeing here because what happens when those those lines, when that order, when that logic is transgressed. Yeah. Very, very bad things happen. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that's where some of the purity codes come from, and that's the the logic that those codes are, are following to some degree. Mm-hmm. And so um, we will deep dive into this, I promise. Yeah, we'll get to it when we read Levitical Law. Yep. We'll have lots of discussions on that. Yep. But for and, now, yeah. And this episode of Nephilim, yeah, that's we'll true. We'll talk about it next week. Yeah, because we because we need to. We need to get into that. Absolutely. But but I want to I want to get through the rest of Genesis six this week, mm-hmm. so we can go on to uh, verse five. Yeah, let's do five through eight. Okay. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that He had made the human beings on the earth, and His heart was deeply troubled. 
The Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Yeah, I think this is such a fascinating section here. Yeah. Um, the wickedness of humans has obviously accelerated to an unsustainable degree. You've got Cain, you've got Lamech, now you've got the Nephilim, this like yeah. unholy mixture of the gods and, and humans. And so, you know, the, the humans are doing exactly the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, it's clear here, you know, it's not just part of their hearts or, you know, a spot on their heart that's mm. been infected. Every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. Their whole heart to its core. Yeah, that's, with evil. that's an intense language. Yeah. Yeah, like what, what does that, how does that make you feel when you, when you read that? Every well, inclination of... Because again, when you sin, do you not think to yourself, selfishly we think, well, I'm mostly good, but I've got that like one little bad part of me, right? That's yeah. the way we like to describe ourselves, we do. right? We do. We talk about a specific sin struggle that we have. Sure, yeah. But which we is, keep which that, is fair. Yeah, right. But when you say that, you are kind of saying like, but I've got like the rest of it's but pretty like good. But like me, I'm pretty good. I just got this one thing. <laughs> yeah, this this one struggle. I have a thorn in my flesh, but yeah. the rest of my flesh, you know, it's doing, doing all right. Pretty cool, pretty good. Yeah, but he says that every inclination of the human heart is only evil all the time. Yeah. Which is extreme. But I mean, we've read that's the case. You know, if, if you're reading the narrative, you're not like, whoa, really? You're like, yeah. Yeah. That checks out. Yeah, yeah, it definitely checks out in what you've seen. And what I kind of want to argue for is like, to some degree, it checks out with our own experience. Mm -hmm. You know, in our Western Protestant sort of evangelical strain of Christianity, sometimes we really put the the pedal to the metal on this sin aspect. And maybe you grew up in a church where, you know, we really highlight the fact that like, you're nothing, mm -hmm. you're evil, you're bad. Outside of God, you are nothing. And I don't really love that kind of language because to me, it sort of starts with Genesis 3 instead of Genesis 1 and 2. Yeah. It does not take into consideration the beautiful beings that we are. Right. But in overcorrecting for that, there's definitely strains of Christianity right now that pretty much disregard the sinfulness yeah. of humanity and just how deep that sin is ingrained in us. Mm -hmm. Um all parts of us are touched by sin. There, there's a, uh, a doctrine called absolute depravity. Yeah. And um, that, that's from, I think that's from John Calvin. It might be from Augustine, actually. But um, one of my professors in seminary came up with what I thought was like maybe a better word. I mean, I don't know if you're allowed to correct Augustine. But, <laughs> but he, said, he said pervasive depravity. So absolute depravity kind of makes it seem like every single thing that we do is only evil, right? Okay, yeah. Which God does say here about the humans before the flood, Yeah. right? But then pervasive depravity means that every single thing that we do is somehow touched. Yeah, it's tainted by sin. By sin. Yeah. And that, I think, is true. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the biggest struggles with being a teacher and a preacher for me is that... I think that for anyone who's a Christian, they look at what I do and they say, that's really good that you do that. Mm. And the problem is that, like, if you were to really dig deep into to my soul, 
And I'm not very good at doing this kind of work. So if I were to dig deep into my soul, why am I doing it? Mm-hmm. There's probably good reasons, holy, righteous reasons that I believe in it and I want people to know Jesus and I want to share the gospel with people. But then there's also probably very selfish reasons because if I teach and I preach, people come up to you and they say, that was really good. Yeah. And public speaking is the second biggest fear in the world, second only to death. (laughs) That's true, actually. That's crazy. And so people sometimes look at what preachers and teachers do and they say like, well, I could never do that. So I really admire that you do that. Yeah. And there's something in terms of pride and vanity that that feels really good. Yeah, even in doing something good, our hearts will always find, you know, a way to twist it. We've always been able to find a way to twist something, you know, against created order. Even the best of things. Yeah. You know, preaching the gospel should be so pure. But when I get really anxious and stressed about a message, it's like, well, what are you anxious and stressed about? Right. Mm, That's good. Well, honestly, probably something sinful. People, their opinions. Their opinions of me. Sure. Whether or not people think I'm smart, whether or not they think I did a good job. And so you can even see here that, like, you know, this idea of the pervasiveness of sin is true even for us who have been given the power of the Holy Spirit and mm-hmm. are, to some degree or another, for following God, being transformed into his image. Yeah. Um, it's still there. And so it seems extreme, but I would argue that it's really not that extreme, and it's actually pretty pretty available to us to experience now. Yeah, that's a good point. The other word that I think is so interesting in this passage is that it talks about uh, God's heart being deeply troubled. Mm-hmm. Because I think that usually when people think about the flood, the emotion that they would give it is anger. It's like the fourth time we've as humans in the narrative, ascribed anger to God when he's clearly, like, sorrowful. Yeah, specifically not angry. They have, there's a word in Hebrew for angry, and it yeah. will be used. Yeah. Do you know the first time God gets angry in the whole Bible? Is it with the Israelites? No. It's with Moses. With Moses. That's I was going to—that was my other guess. When Moses won't go. So— so he tells him to go yes. to Pharaoh, and he says no. And then he tells him to go to Pharaoh, and he says no. And then he tells him to go to Pharaoh, and Moses says, I can't even talk. Why do you want me to do this? I'm bad at talking. Yeah. And so he gets angry with him and then assigns his brother the role of talking, Aaron. Mm. And that's the first time in the Bible, Exodus, that God gets angry. Mm. At least that the Bible says that God is angry. Mm. So nowhere in Genesis is God angry. Which I just think is 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 interesting. You know, he it didn't say he was angry after Adam and Eve. It didn't say he was angry after Cain. It didn't say he was angry about Lamech. And here, after this transgression of boundaries of angels and humans and Nephilim and all this stuff that's going on, the sin that's destroying the world, it says his heart is deeply troubled. Yeah. And uh, 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 another way to say this is he was grieved mm-hmm. to his heart. And it says he regretted having made humans. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So he's he's sad and he's heartbroken mm. about the situation on the ground, right? Um, the emotions of God are hard to talk about because in so many ways he's other than us, right? And so we talked about this with the whole what 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 is it like to be a bat, you know? Yeah. And so we don't have to rehash all of that, but... 
God has been traditionally defined in the Christian tradition as being impassable, is what it's called. And so that means that the divine nature has no emotions or changes or alteration or any of the temporal finite attributes that we understand. Right. right? Okay. Um, and so that means he's unchanging even emotionally. Mm. So how do you square that with a verse that says that he was grieved mm. and he had regret? Mm-hmm. Those are very emotionally charged words, right? So actually, like, I can't really give you like a formulaic answer for that. But what I would what I would venture in terms of interpretation is I would say that there are certainly things that God wants and desires mm-hmm. that our will has the ability to bring about or not bring about. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, we weren't created as I guess what you would call an automaton. Yeah, where we just do what God has programmed us to do. We have some kind of freedom and volition and will. And so he loves us deeply and he loves his creation deeply, which is why he created it. And he wants us and everything around us to flourish. And he wants us to steward his world. And when we miss the mark of being human, we hurt ourselves and we hurt others and we hurt God's world. And and he's grieved by that. I think that's in line with God being love, Mm. right? Mm. I mean, that has to be. If you are love and you love us and you see what we've done to the world and to each other. Yeah. That's completely in line with love to be saddened by it. Right. Yeah. And so I don't think it means that anything about him fundamentally changes. Right. He's always been love. Yeah. And so here's his love mm. being saddened by our, our, our hatred of each other and him and our, our opposition to him. Yeah. And he feels. Yeah. Um, th- there's a, a historical, like theological method is called apophatic theology, which is like, it's called, it's like negative theology where you describe God by saying what he's not Mm. because you can't really put human words to what he is. Mm -hmm. And so that, that, you know, kind of leaves open the mystery of God. And so what we can say is, I think based on passages like this, we can say that God feels. Yeah. He doesn't feel the same way that we do. And in some ways, the way that he feels is going to be, incomprehensible to us. Sure. But he does but he does feel. He sees what's going on and he wants certain things for us and and from us and when it doesn't happen, you know, he feels. Mm-hmm. And here it says he's grieved to his heart. He's 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 cut to his heart by by what he sees happening to his creation. And uh the other thing is that it says he was he regretted creating them. You know, he was yeah. sorry that he created them, which kind of brings up another kind of a question of possibility. Like, mm-hmm. can can God really regret? It's a good question. Like, does he really wish that he hadn't created humans, mm-hmm. right? Because that kind of goes against your what, what we would understand as like foreknowledge and, mm-hmm. you know, all of the things that we attribute to God. And so I, I, I would say like, it, I don't think it means like he wishes he never created humans. I think that that's clear because he didn't have to create us. Sure. But he did specifically because he wanted to. Yeah. The fact that we're unnecessary means that we exist because he wants us. Mm-hmm. So it's not that he doesn't, it's not that he wishes that we don't exist, um, but I think that that he does want us to flourish. Yeah. And what he sees happening in the world right now 
is not only causing the humans not to flourish, but it's causing all of creation not to flourish. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the sin is, is destroying the world. Mm. Um, so, you know, uh, divine foreknowledge, what does God know and how does God feel? There's always going to be very, very mysterious things about that. We talked about a conversation earlier where he told Cain, you know, hey, look, sin is crouching at your door. Don't give in to it. You can master it. Sometimes the way we think about foreknowledge, we, we think that that's a useless conversation because God already knows what's going to happen. Sure. But the point is that he still gives an opportunity yeah. to Cain, right? Um, I don't have the, the references in front of me, but there are times in the Bible where God says he knows something is going to happen, and then there's repentance, and so it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So there's an element of divine foreknowledge where he knows things that don't even happen mm. because he has perfect understanding of all possibilities, mm-hmm. right? And and so um, this idea of regretting making humans, I think it goes hand in hand with his feelings of grievance. Yeah, he feels like th- like this is not how things are supposed to be. Yeah, despite his foreknowledge of it. Mm-hmm. Um. It, it, it saddens him, and, and he feels. And so creation is being destroyed here. Mm-hmm. That's what's being shown. And God's in some way going to cleanse it with water, mm-hmm. which is how you cleanse anything, right? Right. So let's, let's, do, uh, let's do 9 through 12. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So Noah, who is righteous, and his sons come from the line of Adam and the line of Seth, which is what we talked about. And so, so this line is going to be preserved, mm-hmm. and then creation is going to restart with them. Mm-hmm. So in that way, Noah is a new Adam. Yeah, and, and from this line was what we had read about at the end of the last chapter, the, the people who called upon the name of the Lord. Right, right, exactly, exactly. So to say that Noah is righteous means that he's in right relationship with God. Right. Yeah. Um, an interesting thing here, in uh, Genesis, uh, so, so in, in verse 12 here, 6.12, it says... Um, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was ruined. So that's not the English that you have here. Uh, the English says something different because they're trying to translate the thought. Like grammatically, yeah, yeah. sentence for sentence, translation versus maybe word for word. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, I'm not 100% privy to how these interpretive decisions sure. are made, but does that sound familiar to you? Oh, yeah. What's it sound like? Sounds like, and God saw what he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. Mm. And so Genesis 131, and God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Six chapters later, and God saw the earth, which is everything he made, Mm. and behold, it was ruined. It was corrupted. Mm. And so the Hebrew is identical. Which is really, really interesting. Um, and the reason that everything he created is ruined is because of humans. 
this is again the priesthood, the image of God task that that we are we take God's creation from glory to glory, or we take it from glory down the drain, yeah, <laughs> and we ruin yeah. it. But we're transformative, and so we don't get to just exist and not affect things. Hmm. We're going to take it and we're going to be images of God, and we're going to take it to further glory. Or in our sin and turning away from God, we're going to take it, we're going to put our hands on it, and we're going to ruin it. Mm-hmm. And here you know, with everything we've been talking about with kata and sin, this is what you see. We're, we're doing the opposite of, of what we were supposed to be doing. And so God evaluates the world, and he says it's ruined. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So let's do 6.13. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Yeah, so what's God going to do with the ruined world? He's going to destroy it. Yeah, he's going to start over. Yeah. Um, in Genesis 1, we, we stopped and we talked about how Christian theology and other places in the Bible talk about how God created the world from nothing. Yeah. But in Genesis 1, the story is about him taking a world that's covered in chaos waters. Mm-hmm. And then from the chaos waters, pulling order and beauty and goodness and creating a place where life can flourish, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what's about to happen? The chaos waters return, yeah. right? So out of the chaos waters we come, and then because of the sin of humans, the ruined world goes back down into the chaos waters. Mm-hmm. So Tim Mackey says that this is a decreation story before mm-hmm. anything else. And the decreation is initiated by human sin Mm. because when we the priesthood who's in charge of creation turn our backs on the god whose creation it is where do we take it yeah back into the chaos Mm. back into the non-existence back into the to the to the death and so if left to our own devices without god we will decreate the world Mm -hmm. in our sin absolutely absolutely being said here and this is basic biblical theology, and it's important for us to take that seriously, you know. Mm. So then we'll end with kind of the long reading about the ark. Uh, let's do 14 through the end, through, through 21, okay. and then we'll wrap up. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof and opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that is the breath of life in it. Everything on the earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring in the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come with you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. There we go. So God gives very specific instructions on how to build this ark. It's really nice of him. Yeah. (laughs) Because if you asked me to build an ark... Yeah, how do you build an ark? Right. What even is an ark? So to make the measurements and the Mm -hmm. here's how many doors and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot going on here symbolically. So this is where our symbol aspect of our 
hermeneutic comes in. Every time that God gives detailed instructions like this with all the things with cubits and the materials and making sure that all that stuff is very, very clear, sometimes it's like overly clear. Yeah. It always has to do with um, when when they're building some kind of microcosm of creation. Yeah, it reminds me of the tabernacle instructions. Exactly. Exactly. So what I'm going to put forth here is that the ark in the story, more so than being a ship like you and I would know it, mm. is like a giant house. Mm. It's a giant tabernacle. Uh, and so um, what we're going to see is that the tabernacle and the temple are microcosms of creation. And so the different things that are in them, the different materials that are in them, they're all supposed to image Eden. Mm-hmm. And so the ark is like that in, in the sense that it images Eden, which makes sense because that's where new creation is going to come from, right? Mm-hmm. So first of all, there's three levels to the ark. There's a lower, middle, and upper level. And when you look at Genesis 1, God creates a world that has three levels. Mm-hmm. The heavens, the rakia, which we would call the earth, mm-hmm. and then the waters below. Mm-hmm. So you have an ark where it's like you, know, you have one, two, Three. And so it's a three-tiered structure, just like Genesis 1 mm-hmm. marks out the three-tiered structure of the world. Um, secondly, it's made of wood. Yeah. It says cypress wood here, but the actual translation that has always been used is gopher wood. Mm. And no one really knows what gopher wood is, so I oh. think they're like guessing, you know, with, yeah. with cypress. Okay. Um, but when you think about the Garden of Eden, what was the Garden of Eden full of? Trees, plants. Well, yeah, trees. trees. Yeah. That's what they got in trouble with, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. You can eat from any tree. And so it's it's some kind of like beautiful grove, this this garden yeah. full of trees, which which is wood. And so the ark is is made of wood. And so that kind of tracks with with the microcosm of Eden. And then thirdly, the ark has male and female of every animal. Mm-hmm. And in Genesis 2, before woman was ripped from the side of man... What was Adam doing? He was naming the animals. Yeah. And why did woman have to be made? There was no suitable partner found for him. Which means he was looking at the other animals and seeing that they had suitable partners. Yeah. Right? That's true. So male and female yeah. of the animals. And so this is a recreation mm-hmm. of of Eden. Finally, the specific dimensions are given. And, and this is, like I said, what happens when God gives instructions on the tabernacle. There, there's chapters in Exodus that are really hard to read because Moses goes up to the mountain. He gets all of these instructions on how to make the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Dimensions, materials, all kinds of things. Then when he comes down the mountain, the people are worshiping the golden calf, and so he destroys mm-hmm. the, the, the tablets. Yeah. So then literally in the story, he goes back up, and it's copy-pasted. Yeah. So there are two chapters in Exodus that are exactly the same yeah. because it's all of the dimensions and... So one of the things that means is that those, you know, those instructions are important, yes. even though it's boring for us yeah. and we don't know what a cubit is. Right. Uh, it's really, really important. And so here you see dimensions like that, and and you see that with the tabernacle. You see that later in the temple, and you're going to see that in Ezekiel's vision of the new temple, and you'll mm. see that in the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation. Yeah, our our one of our reoccurring symbols will be the tabernacle. We're just mm-hmm. getting into this. So maybe this is, I, I'm reading The Christ Key by Chad Bird, mm. which I really like. And he calls a lot of the Old Testament figures like proto Jesus's, mm-hmm. like before yeah. Jesus was another indicator 
of a recurring symbol, which becomes fulfilled in Jesus. And so here's maybe a proto-tabernacle. Absolutely. In the ark. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like a type. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, and so I actually think that the... I can't remember, but I think that the the height of the decks are, are all the same as the height of the tab- of the temple. Oh, interesting. And so you start to see, you know, and, and this is, again, where that's not intuitive to piece those things together, right? right. But people spend their whole life studying this stuff, and so yeah. you can see that. But if that's true, then you can see that this means something, yeah. right? And, and For that, sure. That this is, this is new creation. It's a picture of the Garden of Eden. And, and it makes sense because God's restarting creation. And just like creation started in the garden here, it's going to start from the ark, mm-hmm. which is like a floating tabernacle, mm-hmm. which will later be built again to represent God's Edenic grove mm-hmm. of, of beautiful you know, garden and life. And so there's a biblical scholar named Meredith Klein who says that the ark, as described in the Bible, however seaworthy, was fashioned like a house rather than a sailing vessel. Mm. And that's because it's a temple, mm-hmm. new heavens and new earth, right? Mm. Uh, a, 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 an image of of the Garden of Eden. And so, you know, you get to this point, and one of the things that we have to see is that it actually seems like the plan of God is not actually to destroy the world. Mm-hmm. It seems like the plan of God is to restart the world. Yeah, he's saving it from itself, it sounds like. Right, yeah. And not so, from him. So why does he have to restart it? Yeah. Because it's ruined. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right, so it, it is interesting, the questions that we ask of God. Mm-hmm. I guess, you know, you can not like this. And you can say God shouldn't have done it. I guess my question would be, then what should he have done? Yeah, what don't you like? The The consequence of what action? We should not like that action a lot more. right. Right? We've brought that consequence on ourselves. Right. You know, and, and logically speaking, really what he should do is get rid of every everyone human and then do something else. Right. Because <laughs> this isn't working. <laughs> right, right. right. Um, when we get through the flood, we're going to see a line. It's called the Noahic Covenant, mm-hmm. where God's going to say, because evil is only on the hearts of humans at all times, I'll never again flood the earth. Yeah. Which makes no sense to our ears. Because we're evil, he's never going to flood the earth. And the point is that after the flood, you know, with Noah and his sons, something happens and you're going to see sin come back into the world. And what God says is that even though you guys are like this, I choose you. Yeah. So then the rest of the Bible is about God working through sinful humans. Mm -hmm. So the actual maddening part of reading the biblical story is not that God's mean to us. Yeah. It's that he keeps choosing us even though we keep destroying everything. Absolutely. Stick with us through the Old Testament. The main person or people you'll be mad at, it's not God. It's the Israelites. Yeah. You'll be frustrated with them. And if you care about like efficiency and business strategy, (laughs) like you will be mad at God because you'll be like, why do you keep letting them be around? Yeah. They're not doing a good job. They're not doing a good job. And you know, even today, you know, like, the, the Christian faith says that the church is the supernatural body of Christ raised yes. to life by Jesus. And you look at the church and there's scandal. Mm-hmm. And people aren't following God perfectly. And people are abusing their relationship with him and, and positions of power and all this stuff. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, how can that be? It's like, well, because he chooses us, mm-hmm. even though we're sinful. Yeah. So anywhere that you go, the church, secular world, 
different religions, you will always see this kind of corruption mm-hmm. that degrades God's world because after this story, we're going to see that he says, even though you're evil, I choose you. Yeah. So again, like, I don't know if that, you know, answers your questions that you have about whether it was okay for God to cleanse the earth with a flood and for all life to, to pass away. Uh, but in terms of the logic of the story, it actually doesn't make sense because he's being too gracious. Once again. Not because he's being too mean. Yeah. Or, or too vindictive, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, there's also an interesting philosophical question about, like, does God have the right to take a life? Mm. And, um, you know, it's hard to say this because so much of the Bible is about God preserving human life and trying to help us flourish <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, despite ourselves. But the answer to that question is, yes, of course God has the right to take a life. It's right. his life. We do not have a right to take a life because it's not our life. Right. So if you kill another person, you do not have that right because that person's life does not belong to you. It's not yours. Yeah. You didn't create them. You're not sustaining them. They don't exist in you. But everybody and everything exists in God. And so what we're going to see is that he doesn't really do this kind of thing. But he certainly has a right to. Yeah. Because we're his. Mm-hmm. And this world is his. And, you know, we don't always understand or like the way that he goes about things. But one of the reasons it's important to read your Bible is because one of the things that if you're being a honest reader, you're going to come to the conclusion that it seems like the problem in the story is God's grace. Yeah. Not his wrath. Yeah. And we get used to grace. Very quickly. And so we don't see it like this. Mm-hmm. And so we see when God gets angry or here, when he's sad and restarts the world, and we don't like that because mm-hmm. we're used to grace. Mm-hmm. But really, if you were, I, I, I mean, this is like a funny thing to say, but if you were like a uh, consultant for God, yeah, you'd be like, yeah, do everything here except also probably get rid of Noah and those kids too. Because <laughs> they also... Because they, <laughs> they're not going to do a good job They're not going to do a good job either, yeah. Right, and then... And then don't make that promise afterwards when you say, I'm not going to do this again. Yeah. Because the thing's going to happen again and everything's going to go crazy again. And and God finds a way to redeem us mm-hmm. uh, through sinful humanity, you know, and, and Christ taking on flesh and blood and walking amongst us is that he takes on our corrupted flesh mm-hmm. and then takes on our sin on the cross and then pays the wages of sin, which is death, and then... When he's raised to new life, he conquers and triumphs over everything that that leads us to death. Mm -hmm. And that is unfathomable. But that's how God has accomplished what he's accomplished in spite of sinful humanity. Mm -hmm. And so um, the grace of God takes a long time. Mm. And it's not very formulaic. That's where we get in trouble when we try to make formulas of this, you know, theories of atonement and stuff. Yeah. God doesn't really work with formulas. Mm -hmm. He works with grace and time and love and transformation and through humans Mm -hmm. who are sinful. And so things are messy. (laughs) You know, the, the prototype king 
commits sexual infidelity and murder. Yeah. And then because of that, his son, his own son tries to kill him. Yeah. It's like that's the prototype of the perfect king in the Bible. Yeah. Well, what does that show us? Well, it shows us that God has made a promise that he's going to move through sinful humans. Mm-hmm. So the best of us are just marred and mangled by sin, mm. and God still redeems us because he wants us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like we keep going back to, it's always it's always the grace of God, always. And so uh, next episode, we will talk about the Nephilim. Yeah, we'll deep dive. The giants of the Old Testament, which I think is a very interesting thing. And like I said, has huge implications on the rest of the story. So we need to we need to cover it and talk about it and think about it. So mm-hmm. yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be back next week with that. You got anything else, Jackie? Nothing else. All right. Well, thank you guys. And we will see you next time on Story, Symbol, Spirit. Mm-hmm.